So let's, uh, we're going to be reading from Psalm 54. Psalm 54. And if you'll join me in prayer before we do that. Father, thank you again for your word. Um, It is kind of amazing that uh, to just to think that we have the words of Almighty God right here in black and white before us. And uh, I pray that uh, you'll help me, you'll help us all to hunger for that word this week and that that it'll begin with uh, the reading of it now and the preaching from it to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 54. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life, and they don't... And they do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus. We just finished the Ten Commandments, and we will be in Exodus chapter 21 today. I encourage you to join me there. So I thought we'd talk about slaves and polygamy this morning. Wouldn't that be fun? Let's do that. Slaves and polygamy. Awesome. That's why you came to church today, right? Okay. (laughs) Right here at the beginning of the book of the covenant, as God is beginning to explain what he meant in the Ten Commandments, the the book of the covenant is essentially a list of precedents that uh, the town elders and city elders could use in order to figure out how to apply the laws we see in the Ten Commandments. And right here at the beginning of them, we see laws for male and female slaves. Slavery is a very important topic in the law, and it shows up not only in Exodus, but also in Leviticus and also in Deuteronomy, uh, many laws related to slavery. And this is important to God because God himself says in Leviticus 25, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. And he said that in Leviticus 25 in the context of slave laws. In other words, slavery laws are very important to God because God is a redeemer of slaves. God brought you out of slavery. Now you are my slaves or servants here in the promised land. And so slavery is an important theme. It's an important idea. It's an important symbol, not only of what God has done at the Exodus, but what God would do through Jesus Christ. So right in the middle of the slave laws, you see uh, God uh, over and over again saying, the reason this is important to me is because I brought you out of slavery and now you belong to me. 
And therefore, you need to treat slaves incredibly well uh, because you know what it's like to be a slave, to paraphrase. I freed you from that kind of terrible slavery, and I've brought you into a promised land. And so here's what slavery is going to look like here. Even the New Testament uses language of slavery in order to describe what happens to us in salvation. Romans chapter 6, verse 22, you have been set free from sin and and have become slaves of God. So what does the Bible say about slavery? Let's look at this beginning in chapter 21 of Exodus and verse 2. Exodus 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, now just the beginning phrase makes you probably think, what is going on here? Why doesn't God just outlaw slavery? Isn't that kind of the no-brainer here? Don't we all know that slavery is a violation of human dignity? Why is that not written into the Old Testament law. And I think that's a very reasonable question and it'll be essentially what we're going to handle both this week and the next time uh, that, we, that we come to this, maybe next week or the week after. I'd like to look today at how the Bible deals with Hebrew slaves and then the next time we're together, I wanna talk about uh, how Hebrews dealt with foreign slaves. But today it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, let's look at what it looks like here. It goes on, it says, he shall serve six years And in the seventh, he shall go free for nothing. In other words, he doesn't have to pay anything. Nobody has to buy him or anything like that. He goes out free. So he serves for six years and then he's done. As a Hebrew slave, there is no such thing as permanent slavery. It's a six and out type of experience. Uh, So slavery is not exactly the right word for this. It's not exactly what we think about when we think about slavery. In fact, Leviticus backs away from the word slave altogether in chapter 25. The word slave comes with so much baggage, not only today with our own legacy as Americans uh, not too long ago, having had slaves here in our own country, but even in the ancient world, that word slavery can be associated with all kinds of terrible things. And so the book of Leviticus, God backs away from the word altogether. And he says in Leviticus twenty-five thirty-nine, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. And so the arrangement here for the Hebrew slave is that you essentially go to somebody and you say, look, I'm, I, I can't afford my stuff anymore. I'm going to basically sell myself to you. Can I kind of be, can I live in your house for a while and work for you? That's what the slavery looked, looked like. And so God is saying here, don't, don't make them that stereotypical slave that you're thinking of. And he explains why in Leviticus 25, 42, he says, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. God is basically saying, look, I bought these people and they belong to me. You can't own another person because I own that person. You can call it slavery, fine, whatever you call it, but understand that this person is on temporary loan from me. So slavery was temporary, only six years, even less if the year of Jubilee happened to come in the middle of that period. And so there was no such thing as a permanent slave. It was temporary and it was also voluntary. Kidnapping was punished by death, and we see this twice in uh, the Pentateuch. Exodus twenty-one sixteen says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. 
And Deuteronomy 24, 7 says, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from, you, from your midst. So the, the Hebrew slave laws prohibited taking somebody by force. You can't just take somebody. This is obviously very different from our own legacy of African slavery. So how did people become slaves in ancient times? These are people who hit really hard period of life. They're in debt. Maybe their crops have failed. Maybe they've made bad choices. And as a result, they're poor. And they can't take care of themselves. They do not live in a society or a civilization that has Social Security and Medicaid and all that other kind of stuff. And so what they do is they find somebody who's willing to take them in. They basically said, look, I need your help here. I've run out of the ability to provide for myself and my family, and I need your help here. I will work for you for six years, and in exchange, you provide food and clothing and shelter for me. And at the end of the six years, uh, it'll be over. And it's interesting that at the end of those six years, by law, the slave owner had to give that former slave kind of a life restart severance package. A life restart severance package. We see this in Deuteronomy 15, verse 12. If your brother... A Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman is sold to you. He shall serve you six years. And in the seventh years, in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine press. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. This is interesting. The whole point of this Hebrew slave arrangement is to help this person get back on their own feet. God provided for poor Hebrews in many different ways. You had the process of gleaning where uh, you harvest your field and whatever gets dropped or left over, you can't go back a second time and get. That was for the poor. You also had the year of Jubilee which meant that every 50 years, land went back to its original owners and slaves were set free. It's a fascinating law. They actually never did it, which is an interesting bit of trivia, that the Israelites never celebrated the year of Jubilee. And in the period from the time they went into the land under Joshua until they went into captivity, they missed 70 years of Jubilee. So it's an ironic irony that God sent them into slavery for exactly 70 years. They missed 50 years of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee works like this. If you're going to buy a piece of property, the value of that property is basically whatever that property produces uh, and on, on an annual basis in terms of crops multiplied by the number of years. So let's say there's 50 years left before the year of Jubilee. The value of that land is going to be pretty high because you're dealing with 50 crops worth of value. But if there's only five years left until the year of Jubilee, if you're going to buy that property, the value of it is going to be much lower because you're only dealing with five crops worth, five years of harvest from uh, the time that you buy it. And that was how they were supposed to be buying and selling land because at the end of those 50 years, the year of Jubilee happens and all the land went back to original owners. It is a fascinating approach to dealing with poverty. They don't take people's money and produce and all that other kind of stuff. If you are wealthy on the year of Jubilee, you remain wealthy. You keep your wealth. 
But all of the land that you've purchased from other people throughout the years goes back to those original landowners, and you essentially start over. And what happens then is, let's say that your family, through the course of a generation and a half or so, has just not done very well through that period. All of a sudden, there you are, just barely, you know, we're still alive, and we're standing on the land. And that land is just staring back at you. This is way better than a Social Security check. Because all of a sudden, you're sitting there, you're looking at this land, and you have a fresh start. Because the land went back to the original owners as it was arranged under Joshua when they came into the land. So there were a number of ways that God provided for the poor. You had gleaning, you had year of jubilee, and then you also have this mechanism of Hebrew slavery. Let's say that you decide, you know what, there's like 25 years left before the next year of jubilee, and I've got a four-year-old. So we've got to get something going here right now. And the gleaning is not working. We are subsistence living. We've got to figure something else out. Now, Eliezer, down the road, that guy has got a stable family, a big house. That would be a really good place for our whole family to go for a while. So let me just go and ask Eliezer if he wouldn't mind if we lived there for six years. I'll work my rear off for six years, and then he'll send us out with some stuff. Let's get a fresh start. On this, And that is how Hebrew slavery worked. And consider the benefits of this. Consider the benefits. I mean, you probably, you can't imagine, like I'm talking about the benefits of slavery, right? You probably weren't expecting to hear the benefits of slavery uh, from the pulpit this morning. But basically what you have is a poor person who is living with a healthy, stable family for six years. I mean, some people are poor because they have trouble in a few different areas. They have trouble in family relations. They have, fam- they have trouble with work skills and with work ethic. And this is what has created the poverty. That's not always the case. Sometimes people experience disasters and tragedies and traumas and so on. But even here in Auburn, we have seen this happen where people are dealing with poverty because they have had a history of family problems and uh, work skill and work ethic problems. So how are we as a society going to deal with this? And God sets up a system that's fascinating. Basically, you take this person living in poverty and you put him in the home of a stable family, in the home of a stable family for six years. Six years essentially learning firsthand, sitting in the kitchen of somebody who knows how to manage his household well. Bible critics get a lot of mileage from the accusation that the Bible endorses slavery. But it seems to me that the Bible's version of slavery is much more helpful to poor people than sending them Social Security checks in the mail. The Bible's slavery is constructive. It avoids the dependencies of welfare state. It trains people in family and in work competencies. It provides a very creative and, I would say, profound approach to the problem of poverty. This Hebrew slavery also included submission, and that's the nature of this relationship. You're going to do what I tell you to do for six years. So, sure, I'll take you into my house, but basically you need to do what I tell you to do for the next six years. You cool with that? That's the nature of our relationship, is it's going to be a wax-on, wax-off type relationship here. Okay? Paint the fence type of relationship here for six years. Are you cool with that? And we understand why this works. We've seen the movies. We love the stories about somebody whose life is kind of a mess and lives under a mentor who tells him to do all kinds of stuff that he doesn't really want to do for a short period of time. Of course, all of this could have been abused. Anytime you put someone in charge of another person, you open the door to some kind of abuse. But consider if you have a good slave owner in this case, 
It has incredible potential to give someone a fresh start in life. Now, there were other protections for the slave. Uh, Slave owners were not allowed to abuse or oppress their slaves. See this in a couple of places. Deuteronomy 24, 14. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he's poor and he counts on it, unless he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Exodus 21, 26 says this. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, you read that at first, and you're like, wait a minute. Why do we have slave owners knocking out teeth and eyes and so on? But look at the rule. The rule here is that if a slave owner beats around with his slaves, the slave goes free. If you get injured, and these are precedents, these are intended as precedents. This isn't just, oh, it was my arm, not my eye, so it doesn't count. No, these are precedents. So what you had here is a scenario where a slave can go to the wise elders of the town and say, look, my slave owner broke my arm. And the wise elders look at this rule and they're like, all right, you're free. And the owner's like, well, now hang on a second. He said he would do this. Hey, I'm sorry. He's free. It's only been two years. You should have thought of that before you beat him. Because there's a protection against that. You cannot oppress and abuse your slave. Uh, So to summarize all of this, Hebrew slavery was temporary, six and done. It was voluntary, no kidnapping. It was designed to give people a fresh fresh start. And I'm elaborating on that here. Uh, by suggesting that that was a period of training, a very healthy environment for that person to live, and it was not abusive. And there were regulations put on all of this. You violate some of this stuff, you lose your rights, you can even be put to death for violating some of these rules. It's also interesting that slaves could run away from their masters. If this situation is not a mutual benefit, let's say you've got a bum master... It's just not a good guy. You thought it was great and everything, and it turns out you get into the house, and it's not what I thought. You can take off. And the law required other Israelites to help you leave. Isn't that interesting? Deuteronomy 23, 15, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. In other words, it would wrong him to send him back to the bum master. Again, very unlike southern slavery where runaway slaves were hunted down with dogs like dogs. Okay, let's look at this next section here. Exodus 21, we're back in Exodus 21, and I'm going to get a running start at it by beginning at verse 2. And I know this... this, uh, This required serious research in order for me to understand what was going on here. When I first read this, I was like, I'm going to be preaching this. So thank the Lord for good commentary. So verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Verse 3, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. Okay, that's cool. 
Verse 4 is the tricky one. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. All right. What is going on here? That doesn't sound good at first glance. If a man gets married while he's a slave, he can't bring his wife out when he leaves. Now, why is that? I'm going to suggest a few reasons here. First of all, and this is the least satisfactory reason, so hang on for better reasons to come. But the first reason here is that it is contractually fair to the owner. He has invested a certain amount of stuff in, let's say, the startup costs of bringing this lady into his home. He has purchased her and he has furnished her with certain things. And he has done all of that. He has made that investment with the understanding that he's going to get six years of labor out of this lady before she leaves. Uh, But that's not the most satisfactory reason. I would say that that is justice, and the guy basically lives down the street from his wife who is still in slavery. They can still be together. They can still interact with each other and so on. Their marriage is still uh, intact, very unlike the ancient South where, not ancient, I'm sorry, but not too long ago South where... uh, Marriages were actually broken and people were forced away from their children and so on. That's not what's going on here. But she stays in the master's house and she is, until she has fulfilled the original contract, which was six and done. Number two, I would suggest that this avoids, let's call it a green card marriage, where somebody essentially says, hey, let's get married so that I can get out of here type of thing. I've put three years into this. I'm dying. So let's get married here. And you can imagine some of the relational trouble that could come from that kind of potential. If that's not even on the table, if it just wouldn't even matter, then you have a more healthy approach to whether or not uh, these two decide to get married. But here's the main reason. Here's the main reason. This protects the slave wife. The husband, who has just been released after his six years, has got this incredible opportunity to start his life over. The question is, what's he going to do with that opportunity? The owner has given him everything that he needs for a fresh start. He's got flocks, he's got grain, he's got, he's got his, his life restart severance package. And what is this guy going to do with that? Did he learn during the six previous years how to manage his household well? Does he have a good, let's call it a business plan for setting up his life so that at the end of his wife's six years, when she comes out, that he's able to provide for her and take care of her? The reality here is that she's probably better off where she is in a stable, safe home until this guy gets on his feet. He might end up needing another six years. I would guess that this was not uncommon. Someone would go in for six years, they'd get their stuff, they'd come out, life would get hard again after a little while, and they'd end up becoming back in slavery. And that's okay, that's okay. The guy's back in slavery, but it's a good thing that the the lady and his children didn't all come out and experience that disaster with him. He can visit them whenever he wants, but they're safe, they've got a belly full of food while he is out working in order to make sure that he's the kind of guy that can take care of these people when they have fulfilled their own six years. If he is not worthy of caring for his own wife and children, uh, then his wife and children shouldn't be with him. So this is interesting. Let's move on to verse 6. Verse 6. Now the next few verses... um, 
Since the Hebrew slave situation was humane, occasionally you had slaves who decided to stick around. They decided, you know, it's been a great six years. Let's do it again and again and again. I'd just like to stick around. I don't really want to go out on the seventh year. I would like to live with you forever. And here's what it looks like, verse 6. If the slave plainly says, and I love that word plainly, we can't just have a manipulative situation here. It needs to go before the city elders to make sure that this guy is making a free choice. This is a voluntary choice. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his slave forever. It's essentially an ear piercing that happens here. It sounds pretty brutal, um, but it's an ear piercing that happens here symbolically on the threshold or entrance to this home. We see the same provision in Deuteronomy 15, verse 16. If he, the slave, says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. This is a beautiful situation here, especially when we apply it, let's say to our relationship with God. Psalm 119 Uh, says, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I'm your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. You see, it is absolutely safe and good to live as God's servant. His steadfast love turns a potentially abusive relationship, master-servant, into the main conduit for my blessing. So what this slave has realized is that, you know, the, the, the biggest blessing that I can possibly get in this life is by remaining the servant of this good master. So this is why the psalmist says, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. You see, it is because I am your servant that I am experiencing steadfast love close up because I'm serving you. I want to be with you and the nature of our relationship is master-servant. He says, teach me your statutes. And that's the nature of the servant-master relationship. It's not just do what I ask you to do and don't ask questions. It is a teach me your statutes. I'm your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. As God's servant, we gain understanding. He teaches us his ways. We are grafted literally into his family, helpless and without anything to offer him except our undying devotion. Psalm 61 says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. So that's an interesting passage there on the servant who decides that he loves his master so much that there's nowhere else he would rather be. Okay, one more set of verses here. And again, these ones sound pretty bizarre at first glance. So let's read through it and then see what they say. Exodus 21, verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, whoa, 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 what is happening here? But this is cool, I promise. God wrote this and God is good. So let's see what God is saying here. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. Go out means after the six years she goes out. That whole six and done arrangement is not what happens when a man sells his daughter as a slave. Why is that? What's going on here? 
Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. That means a family member, presumably the father, can go and get her at any time. doesn't have to be a six-year thing. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. All right. (laughs) So what's going on here? What we've got is an arranged marriage. And this was very common in the ancient Near East and is still common in some parts of the world. Normally, what you have in an arranged marriage is two sets of parents who are just they basically agree, you know what, our kids should get married. Uh, and when you have the marriage, when the marriage actually happens, the husband or the husband's family or father gives a dowry, some kind of payment to the father of the bride. So that's the normal scenario that happened among the Hebrews is arranged marriage, two families, they're looking at each other saying, hey, you're a, you are a stable, God-fearing, God-worshipping family. Your kid is respectful. This will be great. Let's, uh, let's arrange a marriage here between our kids. That was the normal situation. And I know that that seems weird to us, but what it has here is the benefit of parents looking at another family, uh, liking the healthy spiritual lives in that fi- family, looking for things like, this is going to be a future son-in-law. Is he a good kid? Is he respectful? Does he love the Lord? And so on perfect. This is going to work great. So it's the parents making a decision from the perspective of wisdom rather than a young person making a decision from the perspective of, you know, body part sizes and things like that. So, okay. So then sometimes what happens is you have a father who's looking at another family saying, I would love my daughter to get attached to that family. This would be an upgrade for, for our family if she could get attached to this, to this guy. But the other family doesn't know this father very well. Let's say they're new in town, or maybe it's a risky thing for the, for the other guy. Maybe he's looking at this family saying, I don't know about this. I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to make the arranged marriage arrangement. And so what the father of the girl does is he says, all right, how about this? How about she comes and lives with you for a while? Work in your house and get to know her. And over time, if your son likes her, maybe this could turn into something. I sounded like Rev Tevia there for a second. (laughs) I didn't mean to do that. Now, look, if you don't like her, I'll come and get her. Okay, so that's why it says when he sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. In other words, look, spend a few months, maybe a year or two with any time you call me, I'll come get her. Okay, this isn't a six year thing, but just she's precious. Just let me give her to you for it's not a dowry type thing. You don't got to pay me anything. Just give it a try and see, see what she's like. What do you think? So what this does is it reduces the risk for the father of the son here. It's like, all right, let's get to know this girl. Let's see what she's like in our family for a while. Let's see how she rubs up against our family members and see how things go. 
And so the rule basically is if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter, not a slave anymore. So the marriage worked. She's, a, she's married now, and now he treats her like a daughter. She's not a slave any longer. So let's go through this again. Exodus 21, verse 7. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So it's not a six and out scenario. Dad can come and pick up his daughter at any time. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. So again, that's before the six years. Dad comes and picks you up. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. In other words, she is not a piece of property here that you can just go and sell to somebody else. This isn't your thing here. This isn't an object. This is a human being. And the father, her father, is still in charge of her. So you do not have the right to shift her around to other families. Verse 9, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. So again, she's not a slave anymore. She's a daughter. Verse 10, if he, meaning the son, or let's say this owner himself decides to marry her, if he decides to take another wife, and this is where it gets complicated because polygamy was practiced during this time. So if he decides to take another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. So unfortunately, what we have here is polygamy that was being practiced in the ancient Near East. And the deal here is that if this girl gets married, and then over time, her husband gets married again and brings in a new spouse, the deal here is that you still have to take care of her. You still have to treat her like a wife. You don't just shove her into the corner because you've got an upgrade now. You still have to interact with her like she's your wife. You have to make sure that you're still providing for her, taking care of her, and you've got marriage rights, and that has to do with sex. Okay, There still has to be conjugal rights that happen here. I think that's for a couple of reasons. Some commentators will say that a marriage needs to include intimacy, and that's certainly true. We see that uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Uh, but I think there's more here. I think it's more of a Ruth and Boaz scenario where Ruth wants to see... Um, one of Mahalon or Kilion's sons come onto the scene so that um, Naomi can be provided for. The idea here is that she needs to have baby-making ability because she could really easily just get forgotten about if another wife comes in. In fact, even in Hebrew times, the other wife would be called the rival wife. So they even knew kind of in the back of their minds, this might not be a real great idea here. Maybe let's, let's bring in a rival wife that... This didn't work out, and we see it over and over again, this scenario not working out very well to bring rival wives in. But the idea here is that if you bring in a rival wife, not only are you going to have favoritism problems and potential and temptations on the part of the husband, but you're also going to have uh, conflict happening between the wives. And a big part of that conflict is who's got babies. Now, if she gets shoved off to the side and because an upgrade has come along, uh, younger, better looking, all that other kind of stuff, and she gets set off to the side, she could really easily die because this is not like modern times where there may be others to take care or some kind of a governmental system that can provide for somebody who's down and out. But this person could potentially be just left on the roadside and forgotten about. The way that she gets taken care of is if she has a son. That son comes along. That son is not only her son, but it is the son of her husband. 
And what happens then is that this son has inheritance rights, which means when he, the husband, dies, the property gets passed along for the son, and the son is going to take care of his mother. So what's happening here is the Bible is communicating probably a couple of things. Marriage needs to include regular intimacy so you don't start showing favoritism and leave this other one on the side. But also, you need to give her offspring or a seed that ends up taking care of her welfare long term. The point of this is to make sure that she is well cared for on a long-term basis. Verse 11, if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money, which means she can basically leave this house where she has been not cared for and go back to her original family where somebody is presumably going to take care of her. She's not trapped. She's not obligated. It's like, you know what? We've talked about this. We've been talking about this for a while. I'm out of here. And she goes back to her dad's or her brother's or whoever it may be, cousin's. Uh, who can take care of her. So again, arranged marriage is weird to us. Ancient Jew would probably think we were strange as well. Why would you let a young person make this huge of a decision? Young people marry for all the wrong reasons, this person would probably say to us. So all of it is very different. We have different cultures. Hopefully you can see how this Hebrew culture is working hard to create a system of relationships that treat people with dignity. Let's look at two implications before we, we're done here this morning. Two implications of these slave laws. And again, we're only about halfway through um, the slave laws. I'd like to handle the subject again because there are some other even more challenging issues uh, in the text as it relates to foreign slaves. But as far as what we've seen in this text here this morning, I think there are two implications. First of all, God cares about the poor and he wants us to care about the poor. God cares about the poor, and he wants us to care about the poor. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. Sometimes politicians will say that they want to eradicate poverty. They've got some kind of a plan that will eradicate poverty. And this is a deep ignorance of realities of human nature. There will always be poor. And poor people become poor for lots of reasons, sometimes because of disaster, sometimes because of families of origin that don't train, sometimes because just bad choices, laziness. There could be a lot of different reasons. There will always be poor. And what God is saying to us is, look, I really care about poor people, and therefore you really care about poor people, right? Exodus twenty two twenty one. there's irony here, and it's beautiful. God says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Do you hear the irony? If you don't take care of orphans, your son's going to be an orphan. If you don't take care of widows, your wife's going to be a widow. So there's irony there. God really cares about this, and it's important to him that we care about this also. Second implication. Homes are an excellent place to care for people. Homes are an excellent place to care for people. God wants us to get involved with hurting people, 
And this Old Testament system provided for the poor relationally. It is not just a handout that comes in the mail or from a state office, just some ugly long line where I've got to go and talk to somebody that doesn't care about me at all in order to hopefully get what I need. But God brings the poor right into people's homes in this Old Testament system. And that is not by mistake. Now, this includes a great deal of risk on the part of the owner. What if this person doesn't work hard? What if he gets drunk on the job? What if he flirts with my daughter? I mean, there's all kinds of problems in bringing a poor person into the house. This system did not keep the poor at a safe distance. And so it required wisdom, creativity, discussion, and actual love and concern and compassion. The reality is that homes are always messy and helping people is messy. All of us are messy, but God brings us into his house. So the question that comes from this text is, who is needy in your neighborhood? Who is poor? Who is lonely? Who is struggling? Who needs a fresh start? Who needs your help? And how can you use your home to bless this person long-term, creative, committed type solution? So these kinds of questions feel extreme until we consider the theology behind behind them. The New Testament teaches us that we were slaves freed by God. And we were slaves in a bunch of different respects. We were slaves to our flesh, which is that inborn desire to reject God's ways. We were slaves to the consequences of sin, which are eternal conscious punishment in hell. And we were slaves of the demonic realm, which had excessive, inordinate, and terrible authority in our lives. And Ephesians chapter 2 says this, and this is a description of every unbeliever and all of us before we were redeemed. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Man, that's a great passage. The theology of Old Testament slavery is important to God because he loves trapped people. And he brings trapped people through a heroic effort into his family and sets them free from the stuff that actually bound them. So it looks like slavery and we think, gosh, is that a good thing? The New Testament calls us a slave of Christ. There is no better freedom than to be a slave of Christ because he has set us free from the things that actually enslave us. And we are slaved, we we are now slaves of a new master, a capital M, beautiful, awesome master. Not any more dominated or pushed around by the flesh or by the consequences of guilt or by the demonic realm. And we are freed now not just to flap in the wind and do whatever we want with our lives, but we are free to do what God created us to do. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So ironically, true freedom sets us so free 
that we can operate as servants of the king. It's why he made us. So let me close with this from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, I thank you for your word as complicated and confusing and different as it is. I thank you for passages like this, which surprise us with your glory and your grace. You are good. You are great. We love you. We trust you. and We pray that you would help us as your servants to take care of hurting people in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?